Welcome to Crooked Little Girl. This is one woman's story of receiving a crooked gospel that created a crooked life. The quality of this podcast is not professional by any means, and I know it's not professional. I can't hide the effects of long COVID that comes through in my speech sometimes with nerve damage in my tongue. I can't hide the breathing issues from long COVID either, or the outdoor sounds that come and go, or most of all, my five kids that make the noise of 50 people all day long in this house where I'm recording. Still, I hope that you can enjoy the story of a crooked girl. Dear Evangelicals, you are guilty of doing one of the primary things that Jesus criticized and got upset at the religious leaders of his day for doing, and that is putting rules and institutions above individual people's well-being. You are very happy to just casually or gleefully even allow people to suffer, to clearly suffer abuse, oppression, manipulation, poverty, all sorts of terrible things that really destroy a person's life and well-being. You allow that to happen in the name of protecting or preserving institutions or Christian rules, Christian things that are made for healthy times or healthy relationships, things that are maybe good principles, but they don't apply if one person in the relationship is abusing or being destructive to the other. When push comes to shove, evangelicals, you side with the rule, the principle, or even the institution, such as the institution of marriage. I saw this play out in my life and in other people's lives because when things were falling apart, I mean, even before I technically was married, I was as good as married when I had the uh, arranged prophetic engagement going on. (laughs) We were basically (laughs) like linked for life at that point. Um, But you put the institution of marriage and preserving that much higher than my well-being. Now, one of the ways that this played out was that you would say things to me, just like you say to other women in my place. You'd say things like, don't you value the sanctity of marriage? Or we like to uh, uphold our vows We like to honor the promises that we made before God, not just people, when we got married. And it seems like you don't really care about those vows. You're just kind of trampling them down or you're saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I promised. It doesn't matter that God was there when I vowed to stay with this person for life. I fell for that for so many years. Even before I was married, people were saying that to me because I had decided to get married in this crazy way that made no sense at all. Um, When I look back, not just at the engagement, but the years of marriage that I was trying to get help, I was trying to figure out what's even real, what's going on, what are my responsibilities to this promise that I made that I just, I knew at the time, it's a lifelong promise. There's no getting out. 
other than death. There's no getting out if you get married. And now having more space, because I haven't been in that culture for three years now, I remember all the bragging that was done in my church and many others about the very low rate of divorce, about the fact that people could come after terrible conflict in a marriage and their marriage would be preserved. Churches brag about that. They, and they make people in my situation, my past situation, as a victim of domestic violence and abuse, they make people like that feel so safe and, and feel all of this hope. Like, oh good, I'm in a church where my marriage won't end and they'll help me. They'll, they'll make it better. They'll be able to help me solve these crazy problems that I just can't seem to solve on my own. But no, that's not what's happening. They're not actually helping the problems to get better. They might say that they are. No, what they're doing is they're keeping people locked in. And I know that there are cases where people go to their church for some kind of counseling or support and and the relational stuff does change for the better. And that's great. Like I have had friends in that scenario They went and they had communication problems or trust issues and things were made better because both people in the marriage were very motivated or at least motivated enough to work things out because they honestly loved and cared about each other enough that they wanted to stay together. They were just at one of those points of conflict where they couldn't quite get there on their own and they needed support, but they were motivated you know, they were admitting both of them that they need help and they were changing their ways. Both of them were changing their ways. I've seen that happen. But what I'm talking about is when someone gets locked into this lifelong commitment and the other person is actively destroying the relationship. And now when I look back, (laughs) I see things like those judgmental evil comments, I would say, from church people who talk about how they honor the sanctity of marriage and they don't trample on those vows. They uphold the vows. Well, now when I look at it, I see it was my husband who was ruining those vows, who was breaking and trampling on those promises because he promised to be a partner, to be a a supporter, to be you know, just all of those things that go into making a relationship two-sided where both people are safe at the very least. And when he ruined it, then it was put on me as the victim to stay. But people in church, they don't see that because it's very uncomfortable to believe that someone who's acting fine when they're at church is actually very different in the home when nobody else is around. And I know that I'm not the only one who had an abusive spouse who acted great to other people. And then nobody believed me about how bad it was behind closed doors. I don't really know why people don't trust the actual expert, (laughs) the one who is there when the abuse happens. I'm going to 
describe one of the many different tactics that my ex used uh, that went into this dynamic where people thought that everything was fine and even saw him as the calm, level-headed one and me as the crazy one. It would go something like this. We would have something come up in our normal life. Like, for example, the car that I drive, the big minivan, is making a weird noise and there's a light on, on the dashboard. And I'm saying, I think that we need to take it in to get checked out because I don't want it to break down when I'm driving, you know, with the kids. Now, something like that, that was always a huge conflict. And I grew very afraid of our car having any problems. So he would then say, you're so annoying. You make all these problems in our life. Why can't you keep your car working better? Why are you always complaining about the car? It's like nothing's ever good enough for you. Nothing is ever good. I pay for these cars. I'm paying the monthly payment for this thing. And then you're going around saying that it has a problem again. It just had a problem last year. I hate this. You're so annoying. So after almost 20 years of hearing that, I would still feel guilty every time it happened to our cars. (laughs) And I would think, I'm a horrible wife. I mean, I ask my friends what happens if their car makes a weird noise and has the warning light come on and their husbands take it in and, you know, get it checked out. Or even the wives are allowed to take it in to make an appointment and have the mechanic look at it. I never could have even imagined having that kind of power (laughs) because the one time that this thing happened, you know, over and over, I was dismissed and it really was seeming like our car was breaking down and it was winter. I had a new baby, uh, I think baby number five, but it could have been baby number four. And I was really afraid that on our frequent drives to one of our medical providers that was an hour away, I was afraid that in that kind of a scenario, the car would just completely break down. And I had had that happen because we had our share of clunkers. We didn't really have the money ever to have a nice car that was in working order. So I just, I don't know, I I, I started thinking for the safety of myself and my kids, because we're driving up the highway and all these twisty mountain roads all the time in the winter, like... I feel like the better choice, the mature choice is just to make the appointment and get it fixed and he'll have to pay for it because it's our car. And that got me into really hot water in my marriage. I was just, uh, I can't even handle thinking back to how horribly I was treated for doing that. So anyway, um, you know, if the car light came on and it was clearly broken and all that, At first, I would be blamed, I guess, is what he would do. He would blame me. But then if I kept pushing it, if it was maybe a week later and it's getting worse and I'm trying to say to him, something's wrong with the car, I really, really need you to bring it into the mechanic. Then he would go into stonewalling, I think it's called, where he would just completely close down while I was talking He would act like I'm not even there. 
He would keep making his coffee or doing whatever he's doing, watching a TV show, and just keep his eyes straight ahead and ignore me. And even if I tried to, like, you know, touch his hand or something, you know, just, like, put my hand on top of his hand so that he would see that I'm talking because he seems to be suddenly deaf. It was always a very confusing thing. And I I would just keep imploring and then begging and then feeling hysterical and just trying to say, I need you to do something. Why aren't you listening to me? Why are you just acting like I'm not even talking? And it would end with me just sobbing hysterically, feeling so powerless and so confused. It always felt like my brain was just sloshing around like... If someone takes, you know, a, a container of liquid and you just spin it in a circle, that's how my mind felt. Like, I don't even know what's happening, but like, I need help. And it's like, I'm not even talking. And I would just give up. I would go, I would cry really hard somewhere else. And then soon after that whole incident that I had no way to ever talk about again, right? I mean, I would try at first and I learned, no, it just stops there. The thing will never be done. But the really confusing thing was that then the next time that we were around people or at a good opportunity around people, he would completely confuse me, bewilder me even worse when he would bring it up. Now, the way that he would bring it up in front of other people would go something like this. Well, it's been kind of stressful, you know. She got really crazy and, like, got all emotional and hysterical because the car had a light come on and it made this weird noise. And then the other people might say to me, Oh, is that true? Did you get really hysterical? Do you have like a lot of fear about your car breaking (laughs) and I would say oh it wasn't about the car it wasn't because the light came on I just I felt really confused and and hurt and and it was it just didn't make sense he wouldn't talk to me I was trying to tell about what the car was doing and it was like he wouldn't even talk to me He, he acted like he just didn't even care that this was happening And if I explained it in some way like that, he could say, that's weird. I mean, I really want to fix the car. Um, Maybe you were taking my, um, maybe you were taking my thoughtfulness as me not caring. And then we would go into this weird conversation where people who had no idea because they weren't there, they didn't see the stonewalling, they would start talking about how men don't get emotional the way that women do. And so women tend to want their men to like mirror their emotions or to go down into this like crazy tornado of emotions. And men are very logical. They see that the car is broken and they just stay logical, you know, and he would be able to play it off as, him being thoughtful, him really trying to problem solve. And, you know, he really wants to fix the problem. He doesn't want to cry about it like I do. And I would sit there and I would talk the whole time and I would try to explain. And even in explaining, I might get 
tears in my eyes as it went on, if it would go on like to a, a long conversation, I would just feel so confused, so bewildered. Like I'm thinking about when I tried to tell him, I'm imagining it, right? Or not imagining, but I'm picturing in my mind, I did this and I said this and he was acting like I wasn't even there, right? And I'm sitting there, you know, with these people now who are telling me that that's how men are. I, I, would, I just, I would go into this place of feeling absolutely insane because what we were talking about then, it was not what really happened, but I had no way to convey what happened because he started the whole thing. He presented it in this totally different light where anything I say is it's not going to be heard for what the reality was. And because I'm getting emotional in this little talk, now I really do seem like I'm just this emotional, hysterical person who doesn't know how to handle something like the car having a light come on. He was a master at that. Really, he learned from the master of gaslighting and denying reality and making someone feel like they're insane because his mom, who was always just very manipulating and abusive towards me and then our kids, she would do things like, I don't know, even seemingly unnecessary things. Like I remember a time where she told me that she drove from one place nearby to another place nearby in another town. And she said, you know, whatever route she took. And I said, oh, did you know there's a shortcut? If you go down this other road, there's like this huge shortcut. It takes out that whole problem of driving through that area. So next time you should go that way. Um, Because for me, I love being efficient. I love finding shortcuts. I love, I don't know, just making things easier. That's what I do in my daily life. That's how I can do a lot of things at once. I, I find the efficient ways, the shortcuts and the things that really work. So I love telling people about that. So at this time, I told my mother-in-law, like one of my shortcuts that not a lot of people know. And instead of being excited, she said, that would never be shorter. There's no way that's quicker. And then I said, oh no, it's definitely like 10 minutes shorter because you cut out this one trouble spot that's always busy and hard to turn left there. And she just looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, there's no road there. I've gone there so many times. There is no road. And then to take it farther, the next time I saw her, she drove or she told me that she drove over and she tried to do it my way. And she found that road, but it was not shorter. It was so much longer. And I felt so confused. I was like, I said to her, wow, that's weird. All these years I've been doing it and it worked out shorter for me. And then as the conversation went on, she had me convinced that I was wrong. For all those years, I was imagining that it was shorter. It actually took longer to go the way that I thought was a shortcut. And it was proof that I'm not in reality. I I don't have any clue about time or how to drive places. I just, at times like that, and there were a million ways. I mean, it, it probably sounds crazy just how long it takes to get somewhere. 
but that was one of millions of examples of just everything in life. She would put it in this way that as we talked, I believed what she was saying and I thought that I had been dreaming or just completely insane about these things that were concrete facts to me before. And the kicker was that then every time I went in those areas we had talked about with driving, I would tell Siri on my phone to start the stopwatch or something, or I would look at the time at least, and I would drive the other way. And then I would go back and I would drive the way I thought was a shortcut and it would stay shorter. And I would like do it over and over, you know, like not all in a row, but just each time I I spent months noticing the time, talking to friends even and saying, I think it's shorter if you go this way, right? This shortcut, I think it's shorter. And they would agree. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot shorter. And I would think, but when my mother-in-law drove it, it was longer to go the shortcut. This other thing she would do, if I mentioned, because we both love to read, hey, I read this book at the library. You know, it's really, really good. It's all about this one, I don't know, whatever topic it's about. I would tell her about it. And she would say, oh my gosh, you read that? I would never read that book. And she would just say all these really judgmental things, even though it's about something that she's very interested in, or maybe it's an author that I know she likes. And I would feel so embarrassed and, and, and guilty, like, oh, wow, I shouldn't have told her to read that book. I don't know how I could be so insensitive. She hates that stuff. But then very soon after, usually in the same visit, she would just bring it up later on and say to me, this is so crazy to even think about. My whole body feels cold remembering what it felt like. She would say, oh, have you ever heard of this book? And she would name the exact book. And I would say, yeah, remember I told you I read it. I loved it. You know, and I would feel this cold, horrible, sloshing feeling all through my body. And she would say, oh, I've been dying to read it. It looks so good. And she might talk about a good review she read of it. Or she did a preview on Amazon to read part of it. And she just can't wait to read it. And I would say things like, don't you remember? I told you I liked it and you said you hated it. Or you said you know, I hate that author or I hate that subject, right? I would quote whatever she had said before the first time we talked about it. And she would just look at me like I was this like disgustingly, I don't know, stupid little bug that's like not even human. And I can't even, I can picture right now just that face she would make at me. And she would say, don't you know me at all? Or don't you ever listen? why would I ever say that about my favorite topic or this author I love? What's wrong with you? And I would come to believe it, even though it happened over and over for all those years about books and movies. She would do that to me. Another one that I can laugh about more now is she always would make this huge stink about choosing a restaurant. Um, before she lived near us, she would come out for long visits, like a week or two at a time. And so we would go out to restaurants to eat, you know, a couple of times during the visit. And 
So we might say, hey, what do you want to go to while, while you're here? And she would say, oh, I don't know, um, you know, you guys pick or what are the options? You know, it would just take a long time to even get to the options because she had no ideas, no preferences. And we would go through, you know, all different scenarios. And then finally she would say, well, I can't have pizza. It's too greasy. And I would never just go to a hamburger place and I can't do a sit down place. They take all your money for the tip. It takes forever. And so I don't want anyone that has like a, you know, a waiter or waitress that has to take care of you. And, um, I don't want anything that's too bready and I don't want Asian food because of this. And, you know, she would basically like cut down every suggestion we had. It was always so frustrating But at every visit, before the visit and at the beginning, she would make a big deal that she couldn't wait to go to restaurants. So then in the conversation, when she cut down everything, she would just say something like, oh, you guys pick. I I don't even know. Just whatever you pick, I just won't eat. And I would say, oh, well, I don't want to go somewhere if you're not going to eat. Or she might say, I'll just get sick from it. So you guys pick what you want the best and I'll get sick no matter where we go because I'll just have to eat the food and then I'll feel sick no matter what it is. And I would say, well, I don't want you to feel sick. You know, we don't have to go out, but that would be me stepping into a whole other mess because then (laughs) she would say, oh, you don't want to go out? Well, that's nice of you. I told you all these times before the visit that I can't wait to go out and now you're throwing in the towel you're taking at one little problem trying to decide you can't even go through with problem solving you can't figure it out we come to this point and then you just don't want to even take me out at all so she would just be this you know poor little victim no matter what happened and I never found a good way to get through it but the last time that it ever happened (laughs) uh I was starting to catch on that this is the pattern. Uh, Until then, I I didn't really think about the pattern. I just always thought about how stressed out I felt trying to pick the restaurant. But this last time, she went through her whole ordeal, and then she said something like, well, even though it's my birthday, I guess I'll just let you pick. You just pick my birthday place because you're being so hard. And I told her, okay, well, I think it should be this. Because at that point I had decided, I just want to get out of this conversation and I'm going to pick a place that I know the kids like. And I don't care if she likes it or not because she's not going to be okay with anything. And she'll just sit at the restaurant sulking the whole time and acting like a petulant little kid. I know that. So we'll, we'll just pick somewhere the kids like. And so I named somewhere. And, and then... uh As we drove there, she went into a tirade, kind of a sulky tirade, saying, I wish that you couldn't, or I wish that you would make it easier to go out. Why do you always make it so hard? And she just blamed me this whole time, you know, like always. She was saying that I make it hard to pick anything, and she doesn't even know why it has to be such a struggle. But it was that same dynamic, right? Gaslighting. It was... I'm telling from the start that I'm okay with anywhere. I have no preference. Like Because it's hard for her to pick and because she can't eat most places, according to her, then 
I want her to pick. I want to go somewhere on her birthday that she likes. But she would cut off every possible option. And then she got to look like the victim. And it was just mind-bending. But in that one time, that last time we went through it, it, I saw the humor in it almost. Like I got to zoom out a little in my mind. And I thought, if I was watching a movie where this happened, I would just be rolling my eyes, right? I wouldn't fall for it. So I finally got to see the pattern and that set me free a little bit, you know, I mean, the whole overall relationship was just completely a mess. And uh, I think about the worst uh, incidents of going along with her and just in general, not standing up for myself because I was always trying to figure out what was going on and figure out if I was the problem or if she was doing something that wasn't right. So this worst incident, it was when one of these really big conflicts happened when she was saying that something had never happened and I said it happened. It was a pretty high stakes thing involving the kids and I stood my ground. Finally, I was getting to the point where I stood my ground and I was saying, no, I know that we said this. I know that you agreed to this. You can't convince me otherwise. And when we reached that impasse, you know, I think for the first time ever, we reached that place where I was not giving in. And she flew into one of her huge rages, really big tantrums. And she knew how to sulk and pout and be the victim for days or weeks if needed. So she was in that pouting place for at least a few days, maybe a week. And then she brought over some chocolate chip cookies and she looked really upset, but she said, I made these for you guys because I want to show that even though I'm very hurt by your behavior towards me, I'm so confused about why you're treating me this way you're lying and you know she went on her tirade but she was like but even so even in my pain and even though you're being so mean to me I want to show that I still love you and I made the kids these chocolate chip cookies so I just said thank you and she left well then I tasted one I just felt weird about the whole thing I tasted one and it had this really bad taste in it like it was a chocolate chip cookie, but it had this added taste that was like a a bad kind of sweetness is the only way I can describe it. And I threw them away. Like I actually felt like this horror, something in me and not from the taste and not because of a physical reaction to anything in it really. It was just like in my soul, something in me just like cringed and, and, just started gnawing with like this horror, this real terror. And I just felt, I couldn't figure it out. She had acted okay. She had acted sorry, but the taste and something about it, it gave me that reaction. And so I threw them out. The kids were really mad at me, of course, that I threw them out. And I didn't even know. Then I thought, oh, I'm, I'm so extreme. I'm so oversensitive. Like, I felt embarrassed really that I reacted so badly and I threw them out. But then the next time we ate dinner, which we had every week at her house, one of the things on the table had that same weird taste. The broccoli, it just had this weird taste. 
And then the next time it was the homemade pizza, the dough had that same weird taste. And then I forget how many times we ate there, but it was like every week a different thing on the the table. It would have that very, very bad, sweet, disgusting taste, really overpowering in it. And And she didn't really eat ever. Like she, I don't know what the deal is, but she just didn't eat much ever. Um, she wasn't skinny though. I never could figure it out. Like just whenever we were around or even if she stayed at our house for a couple of weeks, she would eat like a little bit of a piece of toast and that was it for the day. So um, anyway, so at our dinners, it was normal for her to not eat the dinner she made us and to say that she had, you know, she had an egg in the at lunchtime, you know, and so at dinner she's not hungry. So she wasn't eating the food that tasted weird, but I started to really, really get worried after a few times. Like, is is there some kind of poison or something bad in it? Because she's so mad at us, and she's always been so dangerous in so many ways. Um, but my ex, he got defensive about his mom when I brought it up to him privately after one of the dinners, and he said she would never do that and and then it turned into as we talked he was saying well she would do that but she would just use like a laxative or something and so then it became a thing where I somehow he needed me to prove my loyalty to him and my trust in him by letting the kids and I still eat this food that he knew it had the weird taste but he was calling it a laxative and just saying well, I don't know. The worst that can happen is you go to the bathroom more. Like none of us really had any bad effect that we could tell. So he just would not bring it up to her and he wouldn't allow me to bring it up to her. And we had to eat there. And that was how it was. And I felt trapped. I felt powerless and trapped as always, because the husband is always right. And the husband gets warned by God if anything is wrong. And me as a wife, I had no rights. I had no way of protecting us. I mean, I look back now and I think if only I had known that I was a real human being, a real adult who could have said, we're not eating her food anymore. Clearly something is in it when she's really mad at us. (laughs) And I was pregnant at the time. It was like towards the end. It went on, I'm so embarrassed to say this, for over a year through pregnancy and then breastfeeding my baby. And we were healthy before then. Like people would talk about our, our health being so good. And after that, we have had so many chronic and horrible medical problems. Like I've talked about on here, just the kids and I, so many hospital visits and stuff for things that sometimes are just really not easily explained. And I can't help wondering what was in that food and how much of it did we ingest while I was praying? The only tool I had was praying and praying with all my might, crying and praying, just in absolute terror that we were being poisoned, praying that she would stop and also that my ex would realize, you know, that God would warn him and and help him to stop, help him to stand up to her about it because I had no right to. 
the way that it was set up. I didn't think I had any right. I'm embarrassed when I look back and I feel guilty because seeing life the way that I do now, I can't believe I went along with that. With my kids eating the food, not just me, but my kids were eating it and we all kept getting sick. Even now we have so many health problems and I got brave enough a couple years ago to ask my doctor if our health problems could be because of anything that would be like poisoning us from that. I was afraid that even asking it, I would seem like some kind of a crazy person or I don't know, like I have some kind of paranoia and mental disorder for thinking that. But she just said that after all this time, there would be no way to know. Like we hadn't had it for long enough that it wouldn't be something that they could test us for and there's no way to know what it was and still the mystery is out there you know i i don't know what we were eating but now i'm more sure than ever that we were poisoned that it wasn't just a laxative because otherwise it would have had a laxative effect in at least some of us and it never did um but evangelicals if i look at you if I look at the way you protect marriage, you protect um, working out problems and not having conflict, I can't believe that you put me and my kids in real danger. I can't believe that you put us through all those forms of gaslighting and people abusing us in so many countless ways that I haven't even described here. But you made it so that, so that I had to work harder at my marriage. I would tell stories like this. I would try to talk about it when my ex wasn't there. And you said things like either, well, if you just pray more, you know, if somebody who believed me a little bit at least about the problems, they would say, well, this calls for a lot of prayer maybe his heart is really hard right now. So let's just pray a lot harder than we've been praying before. And that was supposed to be the solution. But usually people didn't even believe there was a problem like I thought. They would just talk me out of it and say things like, you know, every marriage is hard. And, you know, it's easy to feel misunderstood or not heard by your husband. So why don't we... Um, why don't we work more towards you getting over this criticism, this rebellion towards your husband? Maybe you need more deliverance, more inner healing. And so we would work on me. I was the patient in that sense for so many years. And I wanted all the help. I believed it. You know, I thought, oh, okay, I need deliverance. There's demons in me that are making me go hysterical when the car has a problem. And so I would get delivered again and nothing changed. I didn't ever feel anything. I, I didn't see any proof that anything was getting better. But there was always this belief that, um, that I didn't see a difference because I was either holding on to the hurt. I was holding on to the criticism that I liked criticizing my husband and that was the problem. Or something else like that. There were all these ways that you guys could explain it. And so in the church, there's just no way to 
have any real help, but mostly there was no way to get out because death is the only way out of marriage, the only acceptable way. And even when I would go and, and I would have clear memories of what happened and of things that were just not okay, it was never a good enough reason to break those vows until finally, <laughs> when I was out of your evangelical churches and I was starting to heal and I was really pushing for a long time at that point to get out of the marriage, but I couldn't quite find uh, find the way because I was so powerless, because I had no no real resources to help me. I talked to someone who was a different kind of Christian, <laughs> a, a Christian leader with a totally different theology. And the words that set me free were, you know, it seems like the marriage is dead. And so you trying to honor any vows, it's like you're honoring vows to something that doesn't exist. And maybe it never existed. It sounds like there never was a real marriage here. There was just promises made that were never fulfilled by him. And he is not letting you, you know, have a real marriage partnership. And so because of that, it's not that you're walking away from these vows that you have to protect. It's more like it's dead. There's, there's no marriage going on. And if you get divorced, that's just legally reflecting what's real, what's already happened. <laughs> and when it was put that way, I felt so liberated because that was true. There was never a marriage. It was like I was single and then a single mom even for all these years, ever since we supposedly got married. I was worse than single because instead of just having the space and the independence of being alone and making my own choices, I was with someone who was taking away all my choices, all my power, and he was denying reality and, and just making me crazy and, and making people see me as cra crazy. And the, the whole situation, it was just so confusing, right? But the reality was that there was no real marriage. This isn't what marriage is. And I finally felt empowered to pursue getting divorced. So evangelicals, you kept me trapped from the beginning, from before I even said the vows. And I know that there are countless people, men or women, who are being abused and they're trying to preserve the marriage and, you know, honor their vows when there's no real marriage there. And I hope that someday in your churches, you have the ability to really look at what's going on and to see when it's better to break those vows. It's better to um, let someone out of the institution of marriage and to see that as just as good or, you know, the better road, really. It's better to take care of people who are suffering and abused. And the rules of a healthy relationship, they don't apply when someone's being abusive or controlling that way. 
So evangelicals, maybe someday, maybe in my kids' generation or another generation after that, you will be able to see through the uh, the murkiness of relationships that are that are complicated, and you'll be able to allow people to step away from harm and preserve their dignity, preserve their um, reputations, that they won't be condemned for giving up on this sanctity of marriage, that they won't be seen as unable to handle conflict or unable to handle relationships. Because the truth is, at least nine times out of 10, these people, they're very good at communicating and they've grown relationship skills because while they're going through this, they're having to navigate a lot of emotions and they're learning how to state things and how to try to work things out, to be patient, to be forgiving, all of these things. And so they actually deserve a lot of honor that... um, you, for some reason, <laughs> you just aren't able to admit those kind of things because you love your rules. You love it when you can say, do this and don't do this, and that's as easy as it is. And if you're a real Christian and if you pray enough, then God will help you to do that. But we know that it's not that simple. And so my prayer now is that truth and Reality and justice will be the things that are uh, that are held up and sought after more than following rules.